Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Hello, and welcome to the second part of a multi-part excursion into the new uh, guidance from our friends at the U.S. Department of Justice Criminal Division, uh, the new memo that came out uh, just a couple days ago at the in- end of April 2019, entitled Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs. It supersedes uh, the memoranda that we have been mulling over uh, since February of 2017. Uh, it, this is actually titled, which I don't think I noted um, in the uh, f- uh, first podcast, as an update. Uh, it, it, it states that it's an update uh, in April 2019. And as you go through the memo, you see a lot of uh, material from the prior uh, memoranda in there. If you haven't listened to the introduction podcast that we posted uh, just a day ago on May 1st, I encourage you to go back and listen to that first because it gives you some more context as to sort of where this memoranda came from. But today we're going to jump right in. Uh, we're going to look at... Uh, the first section of the um, memoranda, or start to look at the first section of the memoranda. Uh, As noted before, it's divided into three parts uh, around the uh, risk-based criteria that the department has been talking about for a few years. Uh, The first query there being, is the corporation's compliance program well-designed? the preamble under this first section talks about uh, really looking closely at design. And if you remember, I said I think the three queries can be boiled down to design, implementation, and evaluation. And really, this is all about looking into the methodology and uh, the the uh, underlying risk assessment that went into designing the program or the various components of the compliance program. Uh, And there's some interesting uh, information just in the introductory paragraph. And this is on page two of the memoranda under uh, the first section. It talks about critical factors in evaluating uh, the effectiveness of the program and whether the program was designed for, quote, maximum effectiveness in preventing and detecting wrongdoing. So taking what you have, I think, and, and, and showing that you have used whatever resources, whatever oxygen and dollars that uh, uh, the compliance program at your organization has, and you've used those effectively. Um, and whether uh, corporate management is enforcing the program or tacitly encouraging misconduct. So the flip side of the coin there is we're looking at design. Uh, we're looking at uh, sort of, for lack of a better term, investment in the program both planning investment and actual resource investment. But also, as part of this um, uh, design, there is going to be an inquiry about management and, and their involvement. Um, uh, if you go back to the sentencing guidelines, a big part of the management responsibility there is properly delegating. So I think that that would be one of the things that you'd want to show uh, in your design is that the person or persons responsible for the compli- the day-to-day operation of the compliance program, which is what we're looking at under the sentencing guideline standards, that those that person or those people have the appropriate uh, authority, appropriate uh, stature, if you will, within the organization to get things done. 
And that shows uh, corporate uh, uh, buy-in, corporate uh, corporate buy-in into enforcing the program, uh, that if they've deputized uh, the appropriate people and given them the authority that they need. Uh, the other uh, interesting thing that is in this introduction paragraph is it talks about the fact that prosecutors that are evaluating the comprehensiveness of the compliance program um, should be looking at a couple of different specific pieces uh, when they're looking at the design. Um, they need to look at uh, assignments of responsibility, so that's what I was just talking about, making sure uh, that those people responsible for the program have appropriate authority and resources to carry out their job. So that's number one, uh, that there are policies and procedures, that there are training programs. That's all stuff that we, you know, we've known for a long time. And then they also call out systems of incentives and discipline. Well, again, and we talked about this many times, most organizations are very good or very mature on discipline. We understand how to do that. Not so mature uh, on the planning and implementation of incentives. So do note that when uh, the, in, in one of the introductory paragraphs, when they're at the very start of this document, when they're talking about uh, how you design your program, they're calling out incentives. I think that's an important point to keep in mind. And we'll talk more about incentives when we get to them. Uh, here in future podcasts uh, that go through the section of the memo that talks specifically about that. Um, the first substantive top topic, if you will, that's under section one on page two is risk assessment. It all starts here. And they actually even say that the starting point is those are the first three words uh, of substantive, dis substantive discussion of a component of a compl of the compliance program in this document, the starting point, risk assessment. Uh, they want to uh, be for you to show that you have an effective program. You need to show that you've identified, assessed, and defined the risk profile of your organization, and that the program devotes appropriate resources and scrutiny to the spectrum, and this is the term they use, the spectrum of risks. This goes back to something that I've talked about many times on this podcast and, and in public uh, discussions, that um, for a long time I was concerned uh, that many organizations look at where dollar spend goes. And I have to say, if I have a criticism of this memo, this memo is still skewed towards anti-corruption. And we'll talk more about that as we go through the, the memoranda. Uh, but but generally speaking, if there was a specific risk topic that gets um, uh, more oxygen than perhaps it should across the board, that's anti-corruption. Anti-corruption is not the only risk out there, and it may not even be the most important risk uh, for most organizations or many organizations. I would say if you were to find the most common uh, m most significant risk that, that goes across the board, that's going to be workplace issues like harassment and discrimination, uh, retaliation. Those are things that happen everywhere in every type of organization. So if we're going to have one issue, one risk that should pop up on everybody's risk profile, it's probably going to be those workplace issues and not anti-corruption. So if I, if I have a general quibble with this uh, memoranda, uh, in some of its specific sections, it's around this continued specific focus on uh, anti-corruption. And as I mentioned in the introduction, inter introductory podcast the other day, I think that a lot of the tools 
and processes that we put in place uh, to battle anti-corruption risk, uh, particularly uh, anti-corruption risk from third parties, those are all transferable to third-party risks that happen uh, in, in other realms beyond anti-corruption. So that's all to the good to have a solid due diligence program for vetting your th third parties and ongoing monitoring and care and feeding of those third parties. That's all excellent uh, to have in a, in a mature program, whether you have a top-tier anti-corruption risk or not, because you do probably have third-party risks when you're over a certain size. Even a little small organization like Moorhead Compliance Consulting, uh, I have some third-party risk because I use software as a service. Uh, so there's um, uh, data security and privacy concerns that I have with the partners uh, that I uh, work with uh, that handle um, and store uh, material that belongs to my clients, for example, um, that, that is a clear third-party risk and I need to have um, processes and due diligence in place, uh, even as a small organization that relates to third-party. Um, so I, I'm not saying it's unimportant. I'm saying that you can see the fingerprints of the fraud section of the Department of Justice all over this uh, document because that the primary uh, one of the primary um, issues that they're con they're confronting day in day out and prosecuting along with the SEC uh, are FCPA cases or, or, or anti-corruption cases. So this skews in some places towards um, a very specific sort of anti-corruption-like uh, 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 compliance that doesn't really fit everyone. Uh, but let's also remember in the preamble, the introduction of this document, as in the prior document, it talks about the fact that one size does not fit all, and there's an expectation that every organization is going to have a tailored program, and that's what they talk about here, and that's what risk assessment is all about. So let's get back to risk assessment. Um, further, uh, and one of the big differences between this memo and the prior memo is there's a lot of exposition uh, preliminary discussion before it gets into those queries that we recognize from the from the original memo. And part of the discussion here is uh, talking about what prosecutors ought to be looking at. Um, they specifically note that uh, a program that has had an appropriate risk assessment is going to identify the types of misconduct that are most likely to occur uh, in their line of business uh, and it gives some examples. It says, for example, prosecutors should consider this is all on page two still, whether the company has analyzed and addressed varying risk presented by, among other factors, the location, the industry sector, uh, competitive competitiveness in that market, uh, the regular, regulatory landscape, potential clients and business partners, transactions with foreign governments, payments to foreign officials, use of third parties, gifts, travel, entertainment expenses, and charitable and political do donations. Well, when you look at that litany, uh, that is exactly what I was just talking about. It really is sort of focused on this notion of, of uh, foreign bribery. Uh, but there are broad topics here, markets, business partners, transactions, uh, areas of the world, uh, where uh, operations might be compromised, not just uh, through bribery, but conflicts of interest and um, fraud and, and, and other uh, uh, misconduct concerns. Uh, there's also discussion about uh, the uh, looking specifically at the risk assessment process, uh, looking at make sure that it's tailored to the organization and that it's periodic. And that comes straight out of the sentencing guidelines. Uh, so if you haven't been doing a tailored and periodic 
uh, risk assessment of the potential for criminal conduct and designing your program based on that, uh, then you haven't been following the sentencing guideline standards. So this is nothing new. It's just reinforcing. And again, this is the first topic in the memoranda. So I like to think that the reason why uh, they're discussing this first is because it is a vitally uh, crucial piece of having an effective program. And basically, you can't have anything else uh, unless you've gone through this process because it will dictate, it will uh, help you map out uh, the parts of the program that either need to be uh, stood up or improved or reviewed uh, based on risk assessment. The last thing uh, that is discussed in sort of the, the dis discussion portion of this section on risk assessment is the notion that even if a program fails, and all programs are likely to fail at some point, um, if the uh, organization has gone through a risk-based risk assessment, has a, uh, a clear, well-defined, tailored program that's periodically reviewed, periodic periodically updated, um, then even if there is an infraction um, that prosecutors should uh, still consider the effort around risk tailoring um, and how uh, how the program works. Now, this goes back to the, again to the sentencing guidelines that don't expect an organization necessarily to catch everything, but to make a good faith effort around uh, uh, designing their program. Um, after this discussion, then we have uh, some of the queries that we recognize, at least the format, and, and these have been modified somewhat, but they're the queries we, we recognize from the prior memoranda. And there's three areas, uh, risk management process, risk tailored resource allocation, and updates and revisions. And I'll go through each of these individually. Uh, the first area of query is around the process. So this is methodology. Uh, what, how have you gone about assessing risk at your organization? Uh, and, and the tail, you know, this is about tailoring the specific risks that you face. Every organization is different. You can't just look at what even a close peer is doing and expect it doing the exact same thing, uh, implementing the same uh, processes, the same policies, the same training is going to get you where you need to go. You need to go through the process of assessing your own risk. And uh, the query here uh, goes into what data, what metrics has the company collected and used to help detect the type of misconduct that's out there? And how have, has that information or, or, or metrics informed the program? So what data are you collecting? How did you, what's your methodology and what are you collecting that brought you to the conclusions that you came to with regards to what makes your effective compliance program? The second area is risk-tailored resource allocation. Uh, does the company devote a disproportionate amount of time to policing low-risk areas instead of high-risk areas? And then it goes into this, again, this is my one quibble, uh, big quibble with, with this, with this uh, uh, memoranda, and it's not, uh, it's not a new quibble because this was true with the prior memoranda as well. Uh, and then it gives an example of high-risk areas such as questionable payments to third parties, suspicious trading activity, or excessive discounts to resellers and distributors. Those are very specific. And the first one, no, no surprise, is an anti-corruption um, uh, uh, leaning uh, risk. Uh, and then it goes on to say, does the company give greater scrutiny as warranted to high-risk transactions? 
for, ex for instance, a large dollar contract with a government agency in a high-risk country than more modest routine hospitality and entertainment. Well, it's not one or the other. I, I, again, my quibble here would be this is not one size fits all. Uh, that I think the department does a little bit of a disservice by focusing so exclusively on uh, examples around anti-corruption. I know that's what they're most concerned about in the fraud section because that's the big part of their uh, prosecution and investigation docket, but that's not the only risk out there. And I made this case many times and I will make it again and again. That's not the risk that's faced by most organizations. Now I understand, as I said in the introduction, this document really only applies to organizations that are being that are under investigation. So if uh, it's like the old uh, uh, the old adage, if if all if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, so what these prosecutors uh, that are primarily going to be using this document in at least in the uh, fraud section of the criminal division, you know, they're on New York Avenue in Washington D.C. Those folks on the New York Avenue office. Uh, you know, the nail that they see is anti-corruption. And I understand that. But I think that this memo would be much more effective if it had uh, a broader range of examples. Uh, because, again, if you look across the board at the millions of organizations that this applies to, because it applies to every organization out there, uh, potentially, at least as a standard, again, Going back to my discussion in the introduction, there's two ways to look at this document. One is as a specific, uh, specifically applying because your organization is under investigation uh, uh, by the U.S. Department of Justice. And secondly, as a standard that we all, uh, everybody across the board, all compliance organizations ought to be taken to, taking into account when they evaluate their programs. For that second group, which is a much larger group, uh, the, these sorts of examples, I think, skew towards uh, an area that is not necessarily the top-tier risk that many, if not most of them, face. So that's my big quibble here. And then lastly, updates and revisions. Is the risk assessment current and subject to periodic review? Have there been any updates to policies and procedures in lights of lessons learned? Do these updates account for risks discovered through misconduct or other problems with the compliance program? So A, are you periodically uh, uh, going back through your risk assessment process? Is that a periodic and consistent process? And when you uncover issues during the risk assessment process, how are you addressing them in light of the program? I think that's pretty straightforward. So that's the first topic, um, uh, risk assessment. Again, I think the fact that it, it is first off the bat is an important thing that we all must consider. Uh, there's a lot more to this memo. I've only I've only uh, waded through to page three, but I think it's important for us to really walk through this carefully in discussions and in the upcoming days and probably will take me more than a week. Uh, early next week, I may not post uh, 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 additional uh, podcasts because I will be busy, but um, I'm going to walk through the entire thing, so, so bear with me. Uh, next uh, the next edition, uh, we'll talk about the second thing listed in this memo, which again, I think uh, there's, this order ought to be considered, which is policies and procedures. Policies and procedures is a topic that I talk about a lot. Uh, so I'm going, I, I'm going to be very interested in sort of comparing and contrasting what we've seen in the sentencing guidelines and prior guidance to what 
uh, the department focuses on in this memo. Um, as always, the uh, as I mentioned in the prior podcasts on this topic, the uh, link to the memoranda will be in the show notes of this podcast. So if you haven't taken a look at it already, a look at this memo already, uh, I encourage you to download it and take a look. Uh, and so until next time, when we continue our special discussion of the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs memo, uh, thank you very much. And as always, please do subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. It makes a difference to us. Please do reach out to us if you have any questions, comments, um, or, or suggestions for future podcasts. Uh, you can reach us at compliancebeat.com or moreheadconsulting.com, or you can always email me directly. Directly, I love to hear from listeners, and my email address is eric at moreheadconsulting.com. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Morehead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moreheadconsulting.com.